Sweet little Jesus boy. Some of you have heard about Christmas. You hear people say stuff like, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. So the question is, well, where did the name Jesus come from? Why was he named Jesus? And it's kind of a long story that we're going to begin talking about, and we'll talk about what it means to us. But to understand kind of where Jesus got his name, it's kind of a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. we got to start back in the Old Testament. So again, if you peered through a kaleidoscope, you would see this name. This is the name from the Old Testament that Jesus' name is going to be based on. Like, well, that cleared things up. Thanks, Chad. Well, this Hebrew word will be eventually translated into Greek. And so what happens is through time, things begin to kind of spin. And this is the Greek translation because when Jesus' autobiography was written, Alexander the Great had taken over the world. The world spoke Koine Greek. And so the writers wrote in the common language of the day, and they translated a Hebrew word from the Old Testament into this word. Like, well, that didn't help much. Well, then what English translators did is they took a letter-for-letter translation to say, what does that Greek word look like if you translate into English? So sure enough, you look through a kaleidoscope, kind of spin that thing around, and we get the name Jesus. Now, if we look back at where that name came from, it brings so much meaning and understanding to why the angel said what they said to Mary. So let me walk you through a little more details, kind of the background before we jump into the story. We begin with this word here. Yehoshua. That's the Hebrew word, if you wrote in English. Yehoshua. So that's what that image means. It's an English transliteration, letter for letter, of the Hebrew word. And then the Greeks translate that Hebrew word, and they get this word, translated in English, Yeshua. Yeshua, that's Jesus' name, Yeshua. However, long before the Bible was translated into English, it was translated into Latin. If you grew up in Catholic, uh, uh, Catholic tradition, you know Latin was primarily what the Bible was written in. And so the Latin translation of the Greek word, of the Hebrew word, was Jesus. And that's where we get the name of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, we come to the story written in Greek, but speaking about Hebrew people, and God probably speaking to Hebrew people using Hebrew words. And it says, now the birth of Yeshua. The birth of Yeshua. Now to understand that, we need to go back to a guy named Moses. Moses has this successor. His successor's name was Joshua. However, his parents named him Hashua. Hashua, that's weird. Hashua is a name that actually means deliverer or rescuer or savior, delivery man. So Hoshua is named by his parents, rescuer, savior, delivery man. However, Moses, when he meets this guy, he says, it's not really you're the delivery man or you're the rescuer. I'm going to change your name from Hoshua to Joshua. And what he did is he added a little phrase in Hebrew that's the word yay. So you got Hoshua, delivers, rescues, or saves. He adds Yahweh. That's the God of the Old Testament to the front end. So Yahshua is Joshua, which means God rescues, God delivers, God is the Savior. So the name Joshua, God saves. This ultimately is the name that Jesus is given, that we know as Jesus, but they would have known as Yahshua or Yeshua. Now we jump in to the, what you and I might think of as the Christmas story. Now the birth of Yahshua, Yeshua, 
Christ, the king, was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he put these things, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And you will bring forth a son, she will, and you shall call his name Yahshua. For he will save his people from their sins. He, God, Yahweh, will save, rescue, deliver the people from their sins. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And they called his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. So this is the message of Jesus' name. But you're not going to understand why Jesus' name is a gift until you understand the problem Christmas is trying to solve. If there's no problem, there's no solution. Sometimes you can come across the best solution in the world, but if you don't have the problem, you don't even know what it's for. This gift of Yahshua, God delivering us, well, you're delivering me from what? You're delivering me to what? Is a question Christmas is trying to answer. And when you rescue with this gift, when you, when you wrestle with this gift and the problem it suggests we all have as humans, it offers peace and forgiveness and joy available as goodwill to all. But first, we've got to understand the problem. And there's three parts of the problem we see just in this part of the story. The first problem in the human heart is that we think we know better than God. And if, and if you say, well, I can see that in other people, not in me, just listen to your own kids. Or go talk to your parents. Did you think you knew better than your parents? Right? They were older than you. They had more experience than you. But how many times did you say, no, no, no. I know better how to run the household. I know better what the rules should be and shouldn't be. I know how unreasonable you are being, right? It's just an attitude in the human heart. It's that inner 13-year-old we all have in us that Ryan Ventura talked about like six or seven weeks ago, right? There's just something in us that like, you tell me what to do. Oh, I don't have to do that. I can do whatever I want. Well, the same thing we see in human relationships affects our relationship with God. We really, truly think we know better than God. So God, even though that was the case, God didn't pull away from us. He drew near us. He entered into history to people who thought they knew better than God, and he delivered them despite the fact that they were being so arrogant and entitled. So let me start with Joshua, and we'll end with Jesus. Quick highlight of Joshua's story. Joshua becomes pretty famous in the Old Testament when after 400 years of bondage in Egypt, they've come to the promised land. And God says, this is the plan, this is the promise, this is by purpose for your life. And after hearing about it from Abraham for generations and Moses for generations, they are now literally on the, the edge of fulfilling everything God has for them. They send him 12 spies to check out the land. And the spies come back and say, ooh, it's looking kind of bad over there. There's giants and there's fortified cities. This can't be God's plan. This is not going to work. We're not going to go in. We know better than God how to work through history. And here's a little speech that Joshua gives here. They said, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. This is too hard. This is not God's plan. We know better than him. We're going to go back to 
bondage and slavery. But Joshua, the son of Nun, spoke to the congregation of people and said, The land that we pass through to spy on, it's exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, if God is for us, if God's our deliverer, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. Remember he said it, he called it a land of milk and honey. So don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. For they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. God's going to be the source of our victory. So three things to note here. Number one, notice how God enters. Now we're talking about Egypt. They're saying we know better than God. He couldn't enter and work in this circumstance. So let's go back to Egypt. But you remember Egypt was a time in history that the people were in bondage. They called out to God. They didn't see how he was going to do it, but God delivered them. He entered into human history and delivered a million people from Egyptian bondage and brought them to deliverance. So God has always been in the, the business of entering history with the Egyptians. Moses, uh, Joshua says he's going to enter right now in history in our time of the Canaanites. And in the future, he will enter into the time of the Romans through Joshua or Jesus in the Christmas story. He doesn't just enter history. God also delivers. He delivers. Remember Joshua says? Every time they would say the name Joshua, they were literally saying, God delivers. Hey, God delivers. We're not going to listen to you because God can't deliver. I think Moses gave him this nickname to be a constant reminder they could trust in God. He says, guys, if God delights in us, he will deliver. He will save. He will rescue us from whatever's before us. However, they take a vote. And as with most votes, they decide we know better than God. And that's our third point. They decide to reject Joshua, reject his advice, reject his belief that God could enter and deliver. And they say, let's pick a new leader. And they pick a new leader who would take them back to Egypt. And they return back to Egypt. And he says, guys, let's not rebel. And we described rebellion. Rebellion is thinking you know better than God how he's going to work out his plan. And they wander for 40 years in the book of Numbers, which we're going to be studying next year in our equipping service, all because they thought they knew better than God. See, this is the real problem of the human heart. We think we know better than God, and we actually go, you know what, if I was running the universe, things would be going quite well. You know, if I was in charge of the universe, I would know exactly who gets what, who gets judgment, who gets forgiveness. We really believe that. I came across a quote of a Czechoslovakian president. I don't know anything about his politics. There's nothing to his politics. I just thought this statement was fascinating. He said, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself. Nor is it democracy alone enough. A turning to and seeing of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets that he is not God. We think we know better than God. We put ourselves in the place of God. We think we'd rule the universe better than God. I was talking to a group of young men recently, and they were talking about some relationship problems they were having with their parents as they were going into their 20s. And I said, well, you opened us some feedback. They said, sure. I said, I don't get defensive too often, but I'm not sure you're aware that when you talk about things that you believe about whatever it is, politics or life or how life works, you come across as thinking you know better than and that your parents are morons. Really? Yeah, you talk in such a way with your tone, with what you, topics you pick up, the way you describe it, like the people who raised you and gave you the life you have are absolute idiots. Really? Can you give me some examples? Yeah, I can give lots of examples. They were totally unaware that 
what they were communicating and what they believed is that I and my 23 years have solved life and you and your 40 to 60 years are adequate and out of date. That's not to say there were some ways their parents or grandparents might have been out of date. But the kind of sense of entitlement and the sense of I know better than you and not honoring wisdom was at the core of the problem. I said, oh, you know, I'm going to really start working on that. I didn't realize that. Thanks for sharing that in a kind of non-defensive way. So the Bible comes to us and says, the problem that Joshua encountered is the problem that Yeshua encounters with us. We think we know better than God. So our second problem is that we have dishonored God. Our dad gave us a purpose. He gave us a life. He gave us a plan. He gave us wisdom and instruction. And we dishonored that. We said, no, no, no. Because I know better than you, I'm going to take my purpose from my life and push yours to the side. Yours is not nearly as good as what I have planned for me. And God comes to people who've dishonored him, spit in his face, rejected his advice, rejected the purpose that he designed them for. And God, again, doesn't distance himself. He enters in and says, I want to deliver you from that. I want to help you find the real meaning and purpose that you were designed for. But here's what's weird. God doesn't deliver them from the most obvious problem, the biggest problem, but rather he delivers them not for what they prefer, but for what they need. He comes to deliver our biggest problem, not our preferred problem. What do I mean? Well, if you remember the Christmas account, it goes something like this. uh, Joseph, his whole life's falling apart, right? He just found out his future, his plans, his fiance is pregnant. That's where we pick up the story. The birth of Jesus Christ, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, basically engaged, but in that culture it was pretty much like being married. It was that strong. She was found with child. Notice she didn't volunteer the information. She was found. Now Joseph has a problem. Seemingly he has an unfaithful wife. Joseph has a problem. The Romans are in charge of the world. The, 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 Joseph has a problem. The heavy taxation coming from the Romans. Joseph has a problem. He's about to get divorced at a time that his life is going this way. It's now going into the gutter. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, not buying that thing, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He's trying to do the right thing. I, I don't want to dishonor her. I care about her as a human being. I don't want her to, you know get humiliated beyond what she's humiliated me, being very kind, very gracious. But he's going to divorce her to put her away secretly. So while he thought about these things, an angel appeared to her and said, Joseph, don't be afraid. Fear is what's driving this. He's like, no, it's common sense. She's pregnant. No, it's fear. I want you to know that Mary, your wife, what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. Here's what God, you're as close to God's presence as you've ever been. Really? Because it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. And he came to save his people from their sins. Uh, Okay, well, that's fine. I don't know what that's all about. I would like some help with the Romans, some help with my wife, some help with my divorce. No, no, no. I'm going to help you with people being saved from their sins. That's not my preferred problem for him to solve. But God says it's the biggest problem. It's the root of all the other problems. So what does the word sin mean? What does the word savior mean? The word save, Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, is that God came to tell us that dad, despite you've dishonored him, despite you've rejected his wisdom, his purpose for your life, despite you've said, hey, thanks, but no thanks, dad has made a way to reconcile with him, to heal the wounds of the past, to bring forgiveness so that you can be one again with your dad. That's what save means. 
Dad wants a relationship, and he made a way to heal, to reconcile, despite how you've dishonored him. And have you ever had your kids dishonor you? Of course, we all have. We did to our kids. Do you remember the sting of feeling like, after everything you've given, I hate you, you don't care about me? And then you grow up old enough, and your kids do it to you, and you're like, oh, I did this to my parents. And you suddenly start to understand how painful that is, how dishonorable that is, how entitled that is, how disrespectful that is. And then you realize how gracious your parents were, that they were so patient with you. Or maybe you're saying, no, mine weren't. <laughs> you know, well, I wish they had been. It's an amazing father, it's an amazing parent who's willing to make a way to reconcile when we were the ones that stabbed him in the back. But what does the word sin mean? The word sin is this idea that I've dishonored my dad's purpose for my life, his plan for my life, and his wisdom for my life. There was a uh, British writer named Dorothy, and she uh, was writing about what Christmas means and just how powerful it is that God and the message of Christmas is that God would come to try and reconcile with human beings. Here's what she says. The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life to the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain for all of us and thought it well worth his while. God, who doesn't have to experience any pain, came to experience the worst kind of pain because he's a dad who wants to let you know we can heal the differences between us. We can reconcile our disagreements. We can come together despite what you've done, despite where you kind of didn't listen to me, despite the fact you kind of poked me in the eye several times and stabbed me in the back. I want you to know it hurt. It hurt a lot. But it's worth it to me to be in a relationship with you. That's why the gift of Christmas, if you don't understand how you've dishonored God, it's not going to feel pretty gracious. He wants to forgive you. You're not going to understand the gift of forgiveness and what he's saving you from if you don't realize how incredibly arrogant and entitled it was to say to the God of the universe, I know better than you how to run the universe. But if you understand the problem, you start to understand the gift. We think we know better than God. We dishonored our dad. But the other thing is that we really do think that we're better if we're in control. We think we have the right to call the shots, the right to be in control of our own lives rather than the one who made us and created us being in charge of our life. But God, again, delivers us from our, our control issues. He says by surrendering control, you'll be more in control. The more you try and control everything, the more the things you control end up kind of disintegrating around you. Now, this is a little harder to see in the passage, but I'll kind of play it out here. So the angel comes to Joseph and says to him, I want you to name your son something. I'm like, okay, I've heard that before. Now, notice, first of all, he's thinking about stuff. Right? What can I do? All right? How can I kind of control the circumstance? I'm already humiliated. My, my girlfriend's pregnant. Maybe if I could divorce her quietly, and I could put her here, and I could go there, and, and then maybe at least she won't get stoned, and then at least I'll go on with my life, and I can find a new judge. So he's, he's thinking about these things. He's trying to control the circumstances from a good place, by the way. So God shows up, says, hey, stop all your controlling of this. I'm working here, 
You think I'm abandoning you. You're as close to my plan as you've ever been. You're in the center of my plan. Really? Doesn't feel like it. Well, you are. Then he says, but I want you, you shall call. Like, so what? Well, in that culture, as a father, you had naming rights. And almost everyone named your son after yourself. Look at the Herods, all the Herods, all the Herod sons and grandsons are all named Herod, 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 Herod. Agrippa, Agrippa the first, Agrippa the second, Agrippa the third. Julia, Julius, Julia, Julia, Julia. Cleopatra, Cleopatra. Family, you always had the naming rights to your child. It was your legacy, it was your name, it was your right. I have the right to name my child whatever I want. And God is saying to Joseph, hey, Joseph, you don't have the right to name your child. Now, that's not offensive to us, but it would have been very offensive in that culture. I want you to surrender control, give up your right to name your child, which you want to name him, Joseph, the son of Joseph. I want you to name him a name that I've been using from the very Old Testament 1,500 years ago, that the original Joshua pointed to the ultimate Joshua that you have before you, Yeshua, Yahweh will deliver. Yahweh will rescue. Yahweh will deliver his people. So this was a big deal. So it comes to the end of the passage where it says Joseph called his name Jesus. That was him surrendering control, giving up his rights, saying, God, your plan beats my plan. I'm going to do what you say to do, not what I really want to do. This is a big deal that he named Jesus, Jesus. It was him giving up control. And I think for many of us, we come to God, or we don't come to God because he hasn't met us on our terms. We kind of got this formula in our head. It looks like this. God, if you blank, then I will blank. God, if you kind of give up that kind of dusty old hell doctrine that I don't really like, then I might consider you. God, if you tell me that Jesus is one of many ways to God, then maybe I'll consider thinking about maybe putting you in my life. God, if you agree that what I'm really doing over here is not bad, it's actually good. You know, all my friends tell me it's not really good or wise. But God, if you agree with me that what I'm doing is fine, then I will bring you into my life. And we end up with kind of the Build-A-Bear God. You remember Build-A-Bears? You kind of stuff it with what you want. You put a little heart in there. You kind of decorate him. You put everyone. We kind of build our own little God. Say, God, if, you, if you'll let me decorate you the way I want, put in you what I want, little voice, oh, you're wonderful, Chad. If you, if you, God, will sound like what I want you to sound like and say what you're supposed to say, then I will graciously allow you to maybe have a little sliver of my life. But I'm in control. You come to me on my terms. Maybe, just maybe, God, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, maybe you have a little chat in your life. I keep control. You come to me in my terms. But here's what happens. The more you're in control, the more you lose control. And God says, you, can, you try your plan, you run your plan however you want. You're not going to find ultimate meaning and purpose and hope because I designed you for a purpose that's far higher and far better. So you go try that. And when you're willing to come to me in my terms and surrender control to me, you're going to find real peace and joy and purpose in your life. It kind of reminds me of the first time I went skiing. I love downhill skiing. I started skiing in a youth group when I was like 14. So I grew up in central Illinois, and the closest place to go skiing was in Iowa. I learned how to ski in Iowa. Yeah. At Sundown Resort, which many people called Rundown Resort, but I really enjoyed it. So we go down to Sundown, and the interesting thing about Sundown is that when you arrive... You start at the top of the mountain, not the bottom. So you arrive up at the top, and so I'd never skied before. I get my skis on, I got my poles, and I'm heading to do my lesson, right? Because I'd never skied before, I'd do my lesson. 
The problem is, the ski resort that you would get your rentals was here, and the lesson was over there. And the problem is, the mountain is there. Now, I didn't think enough, because I know, fine, I'm 14. I'm, I know how to do this. You know, I've never done it before. I'm not going to take my skis off and look so foolish carrying my skis. No, I think I can push myself on skis. So I get myself on the skis, and sure enough, I'm in the skis. I got the skis. One of the things I noticed is that I'm looking this way, but I'm going that way. Very strangely. And the, the, the geniuses who designed this, this course, they decided that you get your rentals here, and you get your ski lesson here, and right in the middle are two black diamonds with like straight down the hill, and over here is like the, the, the bump, 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 bump things. And as you're going down the straight down the hill black diamond part, it then goes about 100 yards, and then it encounters a forest. At that point, it divides left 45 degrees or right 45 degrees or an oak tree. Now, I don't have to worry about that because I know what I'm doing. I'm 14. I've never skied before, but I think I can push myself on skis. So here we go. And I'm going. And I can see the lesson. That's where I'm going. That's the plan. And oh, my goodness, I am, oh, no. But I'm not going to take my ski off because I know what I'm, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And now I am going so fast. And I'm like, I remember somebody like on the bus ride said, what you got to do is you got you to make a, a, a wedge. It didn't help at all. I'm still going as fast as complete, only now it's a wedge going as fast as I can be. So like, what am I going to do now? All right, what you got to do is you just got to take, what's a stick for? It's gone. It's gone. So, oh my goodness. And so now I'm like, oh, heading toward the tree. The trees are coming right at me. I got to stop. Oh my goodness, how am I going to control? You sit down. So I said, sit down. I sit down. Now there's three marks in the snow, but I'm going just as fast. Finally, I'm like, throw myself over. I fall over. One ski falls off. The other ski, blue, blue. Guess the brake didn't engage. So I look behind me, it's a yard sale. You know, there's a ski, ski, my hat. Climb back up, they're humiliated, you know. I'm in control, I know what I'm doing. Ski back on, you got one ski now. I got two poles. I, I have to walk down the rest of the mountain to get my other ski, put that on. I get close to getting on the ski left and everybody's like, hmm. Ski patrol guy's like, I'll take a break, Ralph. He sits next to me. Gets on the ski with me. Hey, you ever skied before? Uh, only a few times. I don't think you've skied before, son. So we're on a ski lift on our way up. As we're going up, he's giving me some instructions. Well, here's what, here's what the wedge looks like. You can bend your knees a little bit. Here's kind of how you turn. And I'm like, yeah, this is good. This is good. I get to the very top. He said, now the ski lesson's right over there. I go, great. I get off the ski lift, and I'm thinking, I just got instruction. Why in the world would I need to go to my ski lift? And to this day, I never went and got that ski lesson. And I had a challenging next couple hours, tumbling and bumbling my way through. The more I tried to keep control, show that I was in control, show that I knew what was going on, <coughs> the more I lost control and almost got to, you know, give a big you know, wet kiss to an oak tree because of it. And God is saying the same thing to us. As the more you're in control of your life, you build your life on something besides me, the more you're in control, the more you're going to lose control. And that's why I brought this gift, the gift of Christmas. It's designed to solve these problems in the human heart. And the name Jesus tells us he came to save us from our sins. What sins? These three of many more. So this Christmas, I want to ask you to ask God for a Christmas delivery. God, I want to be delivered from that sense that I know better than you. Wow. 
that is in me. And God, I need to be delivered from the shame that I have dishonored you and your purpose for my life. God, I be delivered from this, this feeling, this thought, this reality that I've got the right to tell you what to do. I've got the right to lead my life and right to name my family. Because all that control issues has made my spouse miserable, has <laughs> made my kids miserable, has made people work with me miserable. Maybe it's time to surrender. And maybe today it's one of those specific things or all those things that, God, I need to be delivered from those things. But a Christmas delivery is about getting you from one place to another. Say, God, I want to be delivered from those issues, but I want to be delivered to something. And Christmas comes to deliver you to forgiveness, freedom from shame and guilt for the things you've done wrong. You tried to build your identity on your own good works, and you found yourself stumbling to not living up to your own expectations. God, I want to be a person who's more forgiving. I keep telling the story of how angry I am, and this Christmas just, I mean, this Thanksgiving reminded me of how irritated I am at my sister or my uncle or my mother-in-law. I just am tired. And the reason I'm so angry at them is I know better than them how they should view politics or how they should view COVID or how they should view the world or how they should view, because I know so much better than them. I'm so angry all the time and bitter all the time. Man, I want to be delivered to live with forgiveness and freedom and generosity. I want freedom to reconcile with the people that I'm mad at because I learned about a dad who's willing to reconcile with me when I shamed him. I want the freedom to give up control. It scares me to death to give up control, but I want to live with that sense of surrender and trust. I want to be able to serve others because that's what's amazing about the manger. Here's this Joshua, Jesus, who came to save people from their sins. And what's happening here in this manger? The most powerful, the most comfortable creature, person, being in the universe came in the most humble, fragile, vulnerable way to people who didn't receive him, didn't even make a place for him to sleep, ultimately spit on him, reject him. But if the Christmas story is true, if what history and archaeology tells us that this really happened, then it's not, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. It's, God, because you did this, I'll do whatever you want. Because you were patient with me, I will be patient with others. Because you were kind to me, I will be kind to others. Because you forgave me when I didn't deserve it, I will forgive others when they don't deserve it. That's the power of Christmas. When I know I've been delivered, I'm willing to deliver others. And that's why this name, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, is so powerful. It delivers us from ourselves. Let's pray together and let's think about that name. Maybe you want to respond to God in your own heart. Just say something like this, God, I need a Christmas delivery. Forgive me for, maybe pick one of those, thinking I know better than you, dishonoring or shaming you as my creator, thinking I have the right to control my life. 
Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying to make a way to be back in relationship with you. Show me this Christmas season how to live in freedom, how to live in forgiveness, how to live in joy. Father, we thank you for this name, this unshakable name, this beautiful name, the name Jesus that rescued us as we came to see that you had the right to tell anyone to do whatever they wanted. You came not to be served, but to serve in that major so many years.